Ken Ilguna says, It's our country, so let's walk it. He hiked 1,700 miles along the route proposed for the controversial Keystone XL pipeline. This was the first time that our country was opposing a public works project on the grounds of climate change. He tells us what kind of welcome he found from Alberta to East Texas. Bryn Jonathan Butler shows us a side of Cuba few outsiders get to see from 10 years training with Cuba's Olympic boxing team. Havana is one of the largest small towns on earth in terms of being able to connect to incredible characters. He's joined by tourism expert Christopher P. Baker on the ground in Cuba as we consider the island's future in these rapidly changing times. There's a great fear amongst Cubans that the Trump presidency may mean a reversal of the new opportunities that travel, especially by Americans, is supporting. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. He wanted to learn what people thought of the proposed route for the Keystone XL pipeline, especially if they lived in its path. Ken Ilgunas tells us about his 1,700-mile hike to meet the people of mid-America. That's in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Rapidly changing news is setting the stage for big change in Cuba. Now that Fidel Castro is gone and Donald Trump is replacing Barack Obama in Washington, D.C., there are a number of scenarios that could play out in the months ahead. What will the impact on Cuban citizens be, and what will the impact on Americans traveling to Cuba be? Well, we're going to talk about that now as we're joined on Travel with Rick Steves for a return visit by Cuban travel expert Christopher P. Baker. I traveled in Cuba last year using Chris's guidebook. He writes the Moon Handbook to Cuba. Chris is leading a tour right now across Cuba, and he's taken a break from his group to join us on the telephone from his hotel in Sinfuegos. We'll also be talking to Bryn Jonathan Butler, and uh, Bryn returned to Havana last year when President Obama made his historic visit to Cuba. When he last joined us, he had just spent 10 years in Cuba training with Cuba's Olympic boxers. Bryn returned to America to write about it in uh, The Domino Diaries and to finish his documentary about Cuban boxers called Split Decision. Bryn and Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Well, my pleasure. It's a tremendous pleasure to be with you. Bryn, I know that you did this fascinating documentary on Cuban boxing. It ended up making it tough for you to go back to Cuba. Tell us briefly the story behind that. None of the Cuban athletes are permitted, or were permitted rather, by the Cuban state to be interviewed as individuals. As far as the Cuban state was concerned... It was the system that produced these great champions that was the only superstar. There were no individual superstars. So I tried to get behind that to track down the counterparts for Mike Tyson and Muhammad Ali with Felix Sabone, a three-time Olympic champion, and Teofilo Stevenson, who was also a three-time Olympic champion. And in allowing them to tell their stories about why they turned down multi-million dollar offers, some of the footage also showed how, in Teofilo Stevenson's case, he had resorted to alcoholism after his career was over and economically was not doing very well. So he was only willing to talk about all the money he turned down if I was willing to pay him money up front off camera. So Mm. that ran into some real problems for me with state police following me. and, And these interviews were illegal in nature. And to go back five years after those interviews... I traveled under a different name, under a different passport, just had to take measures to see if it was possible to get in. So it was a a little bit of a sort of James Bond entry. (laughs) An example of how Cuba remains a little bit complicated to travel in. And Chris, uh, you're in Cuba right now as we speak. 
you lead tours around uh, Cuba with Americans. How's that going? Are there a lot of Americans traveling in Cuba, and how is it as a tour guide and a tour operator? Uh, well, as Rick, I've been leading tours here for about five years. I'm currently with um, National Geographic Expeditions. We spent the day in Trinidad, and it's full of Americans. There were probably four or five other American tour groups present as we walked the colonial streets. Um, that's not news. Uh, Americans have been coming on what are called people-to-people tours for about five years now. But certainly within the last year, it has picked up considerably. And now, of course, individuals can come under what's called the people-to-people license. Okay. And how is my friend the horse whisperer that you introduced me to in Trinidad? <laughs> yeah, Julio. Um, we spent the afternoon with him. Uh, I took the group down there. Julio Munoz, who uh, runs three businesses. He has his private room rental business, photography workshops, and horse riding tours. He's doing very well, and uh, I told him we were interviewing today. He sends hi to you. Oh, good. He sent me a photograph as he met President Obama, and that was quite an exciting moment for him and for Trinidad, I would imagine. Yeah, that's worth mentioning, because the whole purpose of President Obama creating the people-to-people category that permits any American to travel to Cuba is, of course, to try and promote and sponsor and support private enterprise. We're talking about private B&Bs, private restaurants, uh, people creating crafts to sell souvenirs, etc., as perhaps an agent towards promoting democracy. And certainly Julio represents that, and he was called in to meet with Obama as one of about 200 uh, private entrepreneurs in Cuba to meet with Obama and to give them some kind of more public profile and support. Now, talking about private enterprise and entrepreneurs, I I don't think I've met anybody more enthusiastic about private enterprise than Julio Munez. You know, Julio's the kind of guy that I think he could live in the United States if he wanted to. Doesn't he have a couple of passports, but he chooses to live in Cuba? got a Spanish passport uh, because of Spanish heritage, so he's both Cuban and Spanish, and uh, with that Spanish passport, he can travel more or less as a European, and so he's visited the USA three times, and uh, he's very enamored of the USA for uh, many reasons, not least he's seen the economic potentials of the free enterprise system, and uh, he's come back to Trinidad, the colonial city, where they're, they're fighting, they're struggling actually against a huge volume of tourism to try and uh, ensure that this beautiful colonial city, UNESCO World Heritage Site, really retains its integrity. And uh, certainly many of the people who are now involved as private entrepreneurs in the rush of tourism, they're seeing the potential of putting jet skis and whatnot into the bay, and perhaps what we might even call an inappropriate tourism for the context. And this is one of the interesting challenges that I try and educate my groups about as Cuba is beginning to transition to the future. And, of course, we're now 10 years into a post-Fidel era with reforms by Raul. We don't know where it's going, but the future looks bright in many regards, but in other regards it's very challenging. Christopher P. Baker's on the line with us from Cienfuegos in Cuba. He's a leading expert on tourism to Cuba, the author of several guidebooks, and he's taking time out from leading a group of American travelers to talk with us about Cuba's future. Also with us today on Travel with Rick Steves is Bryn Jonathan Butler. His memoir, The Domino Diaries, covers his years with Cuba's Olympic boxing trainers in Havana. Bryn, when we think about uh, the changes that Obama brought, you were there when Obama visited Cuba. 
what was the impact on travel and on uh, locals when Obama had a policy of easing relations between the United States and Cuba? Oh, he has overwhelming popularity amongst the Cubans. I think he had 80% approval rating, which was about double of what the government had. So I think there was a lot of tempered optimism when he came. And I think personally, there's just a lot of affection for him and the first lady and his children coming. So it was very interesting to see just streets shut down periodically. I mean, we had a general idea of what his itinerary was for the 72 hours of his visit, but I saw a lot of Cubans sort of joking if you were in their apartments, if, if there was any sound of sirens or anything, they'd say, it's, it's Obama, he's outside, he's on the way. <laughs> and how does his changing relations affect the ease and, or, or lack of ease that Americans enjoy when they, when they want to travel to Cuba? I think tremendously. I, I've had a lot of people reach out to me who've read the Domino Diaries just asking, how do I follow some of this roadmap that you had to find some Olympic athletes to meet or, you know, mm -hmm. various other people in Cuba? Havana is one of the largest small towns on earth in terms of being able to connect to incredible characters. So right. there's more options. There's more openings. Tremendously so. And, mm -hmm. and I'm finding that almost everybody who's coming back from their visits there is coming away with a very strong reaction of, had I only known sooner, like just how enjoyable this right. is. And... You know, I think it's very notable also with some of the hardships that places like Puerto Rico are enduring right now with a capitalist system. Havana, I believe last year, was the second most Googled place to visit in the world. Yeah, there is a pent-up interest. And of course, Cuba's been a, arguably the leading Caribbean destination for Canadians and for Germans for years. And now Americans are realizing or are waking up to this. Hey, Chris Baker, um, you uh, make money as a tour organizer in Cuba. How did Obama's policies change your world as a tour organizer? And what are the expectations or fears of the Trump administration in moving us back to where we were? Firstly, for me, it's been a mammoth change. I mean, again, we look at the people-to-people -people license category that permits anybody to go. Uh, that has permitted me to operate motorcycle tours. Who could have ever imagined that? Uh, there are bicycle tours. I met today with my pal Peter Grubb. He runs kayaking tours and bicycle tours for Americans. And so this, this has had a phenomenal impact in the capacity or capability of Americans to go in whatever kind of capacity they want, you know, following special interest travel. And, of course, it's having a tremendous impact for the Cubans. The whole purpose is to generate money in the private economy. That is certainly happening. We know the trickle-down effects of money in private entrepreneurial systems. So the Cubans are able to invest in a really world-class restaurants. You're now seeing private bed and breakfast become almost hotels. You, you've got right. 10 room, 12, 15 room private hotels open. So there's a profound impact happening. And there's a great fear amongst Cubans that the Trump presidency may mean a reversal of the new opportunities that travel, especially by Americans, is supporting. Um, they're really fearful of a rollback. So do you, what is your personal hunch? Is there any, any way to know what's going to happen with the incoming Trump administration when it comes to American-Cuban relations and travel there? Well, there's one early indicator. Of course, as in many fields, Trump has played so far in terms of verbally both sides of the coin, if you will. In his earlier days before he pitched for the presidency, he was uh, 
pro-ending the embargo, and of course that would be expected of a businessman. He had sent a team down there about eight years ago to look at the possibilities for golf and casinos uh, with the Trump empire. But more recently, having won the um, presidency, he has appointed to his key treasury team, uh, Mauricio Clave Carbon, who is one, not one of, he is probably the leading pro-embargo Cuban-American. And so that is an early indicator of uh, alarm bells that she may indeed begin to reverse some of the policies of Obama. I personally suspect that he won't go too far. I don't think he's going to impinge too far on the new business opportunities that have already opened up, not least because the businesses that we're talking about, primarily tourism, we're talking about American Airlines, JetBlue, Sheraton has opened in Havana, and there are other managed hotels by Starwood about to open. So as the businessman who's heavily involved in tourism, I suspect he won't roll too much back, but we don't know. And in fact, I was just talking with an American Airlines person, and they're excited about the new opportunities they have to fly regular commercial um, flights from the United States to Cuba. Kenny Ogunas tells us about how he followed the proposed Keystone XL pipeline route across the U.S. in just a bit. But first, there's more to uncover about the future of Cuba with Domino Diaries author Bryn Jonathan Butler and author and tour leader Christopher P. Baker on the ground in Cienfuegos. Stay with us on Travel with Rick Steves. It's Travel with Rick Steves, and we're exploring what may be ahead for Cuba and its uncertain relationship with the United States. Christopher P. Baker writes the Moon and National Geographic guidebooks to Cuba and joins us by phone from the middle of a tour he's leading there. And journalist Bryn Jonathan Butler profiles the lives of Cuban athletes in his 2014 book, A Cuban Boxer's Journey, in his recent memoir, The Domino Diaries, and in his documentary, Split Decision. Bryn, when you think about the embargo... The embargo is there to this day, but it's just being enforced in a light way, it seems like. I understand now, just like when I went a year ago, it's basically Americans have to get a general license by ticking a box that says they're going there for educational purposes or research or or whatever. And then, as long as they stick to their story, it's pretty much legal to go there, but it is still limited on, on where you can use your credit card, and there's different hoops you have to go through. From a procedural point of view, how is going to Cuba different than going to Costa Rica? Well, exactly as you say, trying to use your credit card, they are rather punitive with American dollars taxing you to the hilt everywhere that they possibly can to just try to um, extract resources. I mean, they're not allowing tourism in strictly as a philanthropic enterprise. They're really trying to raise capital. So if you're American, there are a number of hurdles that exist there that are maybe not unique, but it's certainly frustrating. It's less frustrating than it was in my time traveling from 2000 to 2012. But yeah, there's no consistency about being able to transfer your money from a lot of locations. So as Cubans say, Cubaneo, if there's just a hassle that seems to only happen there. We're used to just popping our debit card into an ATM and getting hard cash. In the case of Cuba, I think you still need to bring your cash in with you from yeah. uh, from abroad. Chris, when you've got your groups coming in, do you recommend that they expect not to use their credit card in Cuba and just bring hard cash? 
it has to be cash. We have to uh, make clear this is the U.S. embargo regulations. That although they've lifted the Obamas, at least lifted restrictions on credit cards. Our American financial institutions have not yet caught up with that, and there are other laws in place regarding the embargo that are kind of infrastructural. Um, so it's cash only. Hey, Chris, you're in Cuba, and uh, you've been there before Fidel, and, and now that Fidel Castro has died, you're there after Fidel. What's the feeling in Cuba? Is it different now, or is as long as Raul's in power, it's essentially the same? Is there somebody on deck that people are speculating will be the new beginning in Cuba? What's the general vibe in, in post-Fidel Cuba? Okay, well, you have to remember, we're, we've been expecting this uh, for quite some time. Uh, we're already one decade into a post-Fidel era. I mean, Raul took over 2006, and by 2011, he'd been able to really consolidate uh, his hold with having restored Fidel's men, and since then, he's got on with the reforms that he had on, in mind. Uh, it's really just been a ticking clock waiting for Fidel to pass. And so there's really no change right now, Fidel having passed than there was uh, five years ago, let's say, except for the impact of the reforms that Raoul's been putting in place. The mood right now, I'm traveling through Cuba, the morning is over, the music is playing again, and you would never know that uh, Fidel uh, died or, or anything has really changed. So in terms of aspirations, um, people, I think, are looking forward to... Raoul's retirement in two years and some hope, which will probably not come to fruition, that the next generation will accelerate the changes that have permitted privatization and other liberalizations. For example, uh, even since you were there, Rick, they've really been expanding Wi-Fi. So the next guy on deck, as you ask, is Miguel Diaz-Canel. He's currently 56 years old. He's a communist. And he's playing his cards close to his chest. Uh, I would close by saying that uh, I would expect more of the same, hopefully an acceleration in the reform process that nobody really knows. This certainly is a time of uh, transition and and change in Cuba. And and a lot of people wonder when Cuba really steps out of its Castro era and into what is going to be most likely a change into capitalism and free enterprise, there'll be some kind of an onslaught of, uh, you know, Dunkin' Donuts on every corner and just uh, all sorts of fast food coming in and, and turning the idealism of the egalitarian Cuban society upside down, but at the same time bringing on probably a, a stronger economy. First of all, Bryn, what are your thoughts about the more distant outlook for Cuba as it leaves the Castro era? Well, I think the discrepancy between the way Cuban-Americans celebrated in Miami versus the more somber, contemplative response of Cubans on the island was interesting and strange. Most of the Cubans that I spoke to on the island, they knew what to expect in Florida, but nonetheless, I found that they were embarrassed by it on some level. And it's not to say that they are not looking for the future to change dramatically, but I think it's very telling that only 52% of Cuban Americans in Florida voted for Trump. So there's not a sense that America is going to dictate the policy in Cuba. Mm. I think it's very much that Cubans are going to determine their future, which is very, very important to them because Mm. it's only with Fidel Castro that that country is determining its own future. I mean, with a Cuban (laughs) at the wheel, Not to say I agree with everything he did, but you understand my point. And I think with the wet foot, dry foot policy that most Cubans who are leaving the island now 
are very worried that the policy is going to change and that they're not going to be deemed political refugees. Mm. They're going to be seen as leaving for economic opportunity. Mm. And thus, Cubans are not going to have this expeditious route to citizenship in the United States that they've enjoyed for decades, which could be a good thing. And then it's going to prevent a lot of people who would otherwise, uh, you know, 30% of the people who make that journey lose their lives. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's been a very cynical policy in many respects mm -hmm. also. So more travel visas for Cubans is something that's extraordinarily positive, that people are traveling more than they ever have. Mm -hmm. um, and most of them are coming back. They're not escaping. Christopher P. Baker's on the line from Cienfuegos in Cuba. And Brent Jonathan Butler is with us in the studio as we discuss changing times for Cuba and its relationship with the U.S. You'll find links to our guests with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Christopher Baker, what is your take on the future of Cuba as it moves more into capitalism, I would assume, and away from the Castro era? I know some people think it's going to just suffer a tsunami of low-end commercialism and so on and, and uh, take away a lot of the elegance of the island. On the other hand, there'll be more freedom and probably more affluence. So what's your take? Well, firstly, I want to say I agree wholeheartedly with everything Britain said there. And I would add that um, I think one of the reasons that we've seen um, what for Cuba's contemporary history has been fairly dramatic reform on the island by Raul, long, long, long way to go, is because America has eased up, that Obama has given it more space. The, the sense of the great enemy ready to invade is kind of lightened up. And let's hope that process can continue. Whilst they say that we're really not looking to China, we're not looking to Vietnam, I think it's pretty clear that Raoul has been influenced by Vietnam's model of development. And, uh, you know, the Communist Party still rules, but they've uh, really opened up the economy. And I think that perhaps is long-term goal. But because America's embargo still is in place and the policy of trying to force change, um, whatever means in Cuba still is in place, they're very, very cautious about that. And you have, of course, an elite within Cuba, the particularly within the military, which runs pretty much half the economy, that benefits from the way things are. So you get dedicated communists, and you've got those who are beneficiaries of privilege because they're at the top of the pecking order, uh, etc. And so they're obviously going to be very guarded about uh, accelerating the reform to a point where the system itself shifted. There's no, certainly no sense that they're aiming for uh, what we would call a democratic society or a fully free enterprise society. I think they're going to gradually inch towards that. And, of course, what Trump does and what the next president after Trump does will play very heavily into that. And I don't have the crystal ball, and mm -hmm. I don't think anybody else does. No. You know, it's so interesting when you go to Cuba to struggle and wrangle with its quirky economy. I mean, there's two currencies, one for the tourists and, and people in the international economy and one for the locals. I think the standard wage for a government worker is uh, $50 a month, and huge percent of the workforce is government employees. But uh, so much is free. You get free health care, free education, subsidized housing, subsidized food. Uh, and uh, the $50 a month is almost like pocket money. And they're dealing with this Cuban communist system and also with the impact of the embargo. How can people earn $50 a month? And then, on the other hand, I was paying $100 a day for my tour guide. It just seems completely out of whack. How do you sort that out sure, as a tour well, guide? I think I've, 
I think any Cuban who is making $50 a month on the state would be quite happy. That's actually double the amount that they get. But I, I say that most Cubans are self-employed. They've got something going on. The state wage, which averages about $25, is really not representative of how much uh, income the majority of the people are earning. There are obviously people who are earning less than that and don't have access to these other resources. But uh, you made a very interesting point there, Rick, that the costs are very, very minimal. Uh, I certainly know I need to make about 3500 to meet my bills of the rent, the electricity, the car insurance, etc. Cubans have virtually none of those costs involved, but they have something else that's even more valuable than the, the health and education that is so often quoted as being the main uh, asset that the revolution has given them. And that is firstly a value system. It's such a safe society. The kids mm-hmm. can go out without fear. Of, there's no drugs in society. There's very little crime. These are all factors that need to be put into the equation. Certainly they look towards uh, greater material benefits. They look towards controlling their economic lives much more for sure. I think freedom of expression would be welcome, but it's not their number one aspiration. But certainly all of those, they don't want to give up the benefits that they have. And I'm not just talking of health and education. I'm talking about these other quality of life parameters. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher P. Baker. He is the author of The Moon Guides to Cuba. And we're talking with Bryn Jonathan Butler, who is uh, the author of The Domino Diaries and uh, the director of the documentary about Cuban boxing legends called Split Decision. Bryn, it is so interesting to think of the economic challenges and the social successes of Cuba and then try to compare it. And I think a lot of Americans compare Cuba's poverty to the affluence in the United States, but Mm. it seems to me more fair to compare it with the economic realities in Honduras or Guatemala if you wanted to try to figure out which system works better. How would you compare the success or the failure of the Cuban system to other Latin American countries? Well, I think Chris raised a a very, very reasonable point that's often neglected is that it is a society where there's almost no violence, where women walk safely at night. You know, there's a little bit of petty theft and that kind of thing, but it's a very safe society. There are no drug gangs. And one of the things he omitted is that all cultural and sporting events are free to the masses Mm -hmm. as well. So you've got an incredibly cultured, erudite society where it's part of the discussion. I mean, it's one thing you hear that there's censorship, so books are banned, but it also tells you that books are so important that they need to be banned. One of the things that's so interesting for me about Cuba is that if you try to take the legacy of Fidel Castro and cherry pick him negatively or positively, you're left in a vulnerable position to people who are opposed to your point of view. That's the beauty of traveling there and just uh, seeing the complexities and the nuances of it. It's not simply capitalism against uh, desperate, wrong-minded communism. It's so multifaceted. Christopher, when I'm trying to assess the situation economically in Cuba, you got your elites in Cuba and you got your elites in Honduras and Guatemala, but the lot of the average working person in Cuba, poor as they may be, is about the same as the lot of the average working person in Guatemala. Uh, The difference to me would be in Cuba, you don't have that crime element. I was really nervous in San Salvador and Managua going out at night, uh, whereas in Havana I felt perfectly safe. And you've got uh, a level of education and security from having health care available in Cuba that you would not have in Honduras or Guatemala. Oh, that's 
absolutely the case. I mean, the quality of life for the average Cuban, most Cubans, I shouldn't just say the, the average, most Cubans, is um, very, very good when you pull in all the different parameters that we've just been discussing. And the end result is a very contented society. They may not be contented with their economic lot. We've discussed that. This is why uh, so many Cubans leave, uh, not least because, as Bryn mentioned, you've got the wet foot, dry foot policy. And for those who don't know what that is, Cubans exclusively uh, have the right, if they actually took U.S. soil, regardless of how they arrive, to stay. Uh, and that is a massive incentive for Cubans to leave Cuba, and that was the whole intent of it, to present right. them as political refugees. But apart from some of the economic difficulties that so many Cubans do indeed have, the quality of life is very, very good. And certainly, you know, I know Central America. I've written books on Central America. Uh, you compare Cuba to its uh, immediate neighbors, Dominican Republic, Haiti, Jamaica. You have their very well-developed economic middle class upper class even, but you also have this incredible poverty in parallel with it, as existed in Cuba in 1950. So when mm -hmm. I hear a lot of my um, clients who I travel with on my group tours, actually they say, oh my goodness, the poverty here. I always feel compelled to say, you want to seek poverty in Cuba, real poverty? Go to the airport on a plane and fly to Jamaica and fly to Dominican Republic and fly right. to Haiti. Right. This is so fascinating, and we're coming into a, a time of change with a new administration here in the United States and, and Cuba evolving. Bryn and Christopher, I'd like you both to pretend you're sitting down for a mojito with the uh, President Donald Trump, and you've got a chance to give him one little bit of advice on Cuba. I'd love to hear what your advice would be to President Trump. Let's start with you, Bryn. I suggest that he go there and see it. You know, I'm, I'm in Manhattan now, and I'm surrounded by homelessness wherever I go, which doesn't exist in Havana. There may be several people living in small spaces, but there is no homelessness. And that resonates in a big way with these people, that they mm -hmm. feel secure with their health, with their education, with, with the idea that their children have a basic standard of life that is valuable and that it didn't just come from nowhere, that it was a, a conspiracy to look after those concerns for the weakest among them, and that it's been sustained for many decades, and, and they care about that going forward. Mm -hmm. they, they certainly have economic concerns that they would like to live better than they do, but they don't want to sacrifice, I think, a lot of the values of social justice that were brought in with the revolution. And Christopher P. Baker, let's pretend uh, Donald Trump just took a sip of his mojito and he looks at you and he goes, hey, Christopher, what should I know about Cuba? You've written a book. Brent and I are of the same mind. Um, I was thinking I would like to uh, take him down there personally and give him the Chris Baker's insight into Cuba tour uh, for exactly the same reasons that Brent mentioned. But I have one big fear that he wouldn't be seeing Cuba through the same eyes that Bryn and I quite clearly do, because I'm not quite sure that he can feel what we feel for the Cuban people, because um, I love these people, I love Cuba, and it's all about, uh, for me, it's not about what benefits there are to the states, it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's all about how Cuba can benefit, and of course, in this context of the question, how it can benefit from Trump having insights that um, guide him in his policymaking. On my biggest fear is that he'd be seeing where he can put his golf courses and casinos, and that would be the end of the story and screw the under guy. <laughs> Chris Baker, author of The Moon Handbook to Cuba, 
and Bryn Jonathan Butler with your writing about Cuban culture in the Domino Diaries and Split Decision. Thanks so much for your insight into this fascinating island, Cuba. Thanks so much. Thank you, Rick. Ken Ilgunas walked right into the debate over the Keystone XL pipeline when he decided to hike its proposed route from Alberta to Texas. He tells us what he encountered next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Ken Ilgunas walked right into the heat of the debate over climate change when he decided to see for himself where the proposed Keystone XL pipeline was going. As he's no stranger to roughing it in the wild, Ken decided to hike the entire 1,700-mile route that was being planned from the Alberta oil sands all the way to the oil refineries of Port Arthur, Texas. He describes his strategies for tackling blisters and barbed wire, living on beef jerky, wintertime camping on the plains, and the locals he befriended along the way in his book, Trespassing Across America. Ken, thanks for joining us. I'm thrilled to be on, Rick. What a trip. Now, tell us, just before we get into all the specifics, what is the 1,700-mile-long route of the Keystone XL pipeline that you hiked? So the northern terminus is in a place called Hardesty, Alberta, sort of near Calgary and Edmonton on the Canadian Great Plains. And then it kind of just heads in a southeast and south direction, pretty much all the way down to the Texas Gulf Coast. So it's going through the provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan and the states of Montana, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and finally Texas. So it's a Great Plains pipe. And 1,700 miles, how much of that did you walk and then how did you cover the rest of the ground? I hiked every mile of it, uh, wow. uh, except for 17 miles in central Nebraska. And it's kind of a long story, but I was detained by a cop and shipped out of the county because he thought that I was liberating dogs from homes in the town of Petersburg, Nebraska. Oh. But otherwise, it was a, about a 1,700-mile walk. The subtitle is One Man's Epic, Never Done Before, and Sort of Illegal, Hike Across the Heartland. When you say sort of illegal, is that just an issue of trespassing, or what was the issue there? It was an issue of trespassing, yes. And it's kind of a, an unclear legality, because legally you can walk across a lot of private land in the United States. It depends on the state if there's no no trespassing signs or no no private property signs. So in many cases, I was walking across private property legally, but when I did come across a no trespassing sign, I kind of just uh, kept going. You just kept going. Did you have to climb <laughs> fences that are designed to keep you out? Across the Great Plains, there's barbed wire fences just all over the place. So I'd have to hop or roll under or step over a barbed wire fence mm -hmm. probably about 30 times a day. And I got quite good at it by the end. You wouldn't know it, but there's an art to getting past a, a barbed wire fence. So what is the art of getting past a barbed wire fence? Well, I started off by using kind of the, the wooden pole, which is usually, I don't know, three or four feet high, and then just kind of climbing the barbed wire with my feet and hopping over. And that, that took a strain on my leg because you're constantly hopping from, you know, three or four feet high several times a day. Then I started rolling 
under them and you know you'd have to toss your pack over first and then get on the ground roll under you'd be covering grass seed sometimes the grass is wet or sometimes it's snowy so you're getting your clothes all all so if there's a two-foot gap you can actually roll under it oh yeah and the true way to get over a barbed wire fence and i can't believe it took me this long to figure it out but in between the two wooden fence posts the wire is a little bit more flexible right in the middle. So if you press down on the barbed wire, you can push it down far enough to swing one leg over and then the other. So you don't have to take your pack off and throw it over 30 times a day. So I figured that out by the end. This is a lot of hiking, a lot of barbed wire, a lot of trespassing. Why did you do it? What was your mission? Well, at the time... The Keystone XL was being debated across the nation. And, you know, I just found something very fascinating about it. This was the first time that our country was opposing a public works project on the grounds of climate change. And this was historically significant. I thought of this as one of the biggest events in the early 21st century, one of the most symbolic events. This is where industry is pitted against environmentalists. This is when habits of our past are clashing with hopes of our future. So I wanted to go out onto the Great Plains and learn everything I could about the Keystone XL. You know, even though it's in the middle of nowhere, I thought of the XL and the Plains at this time as the center of the universe. And I suppose there was also something that just kind of excited me about the journey. When someone wants to go on a journey across America, the first thing we think of is our mega trails, like the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest, or the Continental Divide. You know, we go out Mm -hmm. there for six months and walk this 2,000-mile trail. And those are magnificent trails, and I'm happy they're there, and I respect all the people who maintain them and walk them. But they didn't excite me because, you know, they're trails. They've been blazed. They have signs going to shelters and where you can get water. This journey, something that had never essentially been done, walking across the Great Plains, a private property journey, trespassing across America, not knowing what's beyond the next hill, not knowing who I'm going to encounter, not knowing um, the sort of animal encounters I'm going to have, that excited the hell out of me. Lots of material for a book. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ken Ilgunas, and his book is Trespassing Across America, One Man's Epic, Never Done Before, and Sort of Illegal Hike Across the Heartland. Ken, when you talk about your commitment to the environment and so on and this sort of symbolic you know, value of, of raising awareness of the pipeline, just give me a little primer because I don't even understand why the pipeline is harmful to the environment. Why is it such a big deal for environmentalists? I think there's a couple reasons. This Keystone XL pipeline and a number of existing pipelines in the ground are linked to a place called the Tar Sands of Alberta. And this is a massive area in northern Alberta where they're pit mining to get something called tar sands, which is essentially a substance called bitumen, which is a mixture of clay, soil, water, and oil. So to get this bitumen, you have to bulldoze the boreal forest, dig it up, and then use tons of fresh water, tons of chemicals, tons of natural gas 
to refine it on site before you can pipe it down these, okay. these pipelines. So what's happening in northern Alberta right now is they're essentially just bulldozing this enormous boreal forest, polluting these pristine rivers. The nearby Native American villages are experiencing unprecedented rates of cancer. So that's one big reason why we've created such mm. a hullabaloo over the Keystone. So itself. in other words, the pipeline itself is not the environmental bad news. It's the addition of the pipeline makes it viable to do more environmental damage up in the oil fields of Canada. Is that right? That's part of it. But mm -hmm. a pipe can be very damaging at the same time. Mm -hmm. And we saw this in the Kalamazoo River in Michigan when there was mm -hmm. a dill bit spill, the same sort of substance that would be going to the Keystone XL in the river. And this cost billions of dollars and took several years to clean up. And Nebraskans in mm -hmm. particular were very worried about this pipeline mm. because it went through something called the Ogallala Aquifer, which mm -hmm. underlies pretty much the entire state mm. of Nebraska. So a rupture in the pipe could possibly corrupt this essential mm. water source for people's drinking water and mm. farming irrigation. And I think to kind of take the broadest look possible at the Keystone XL, we started to get worried about it in 2009, 2010. And that's when the protests started happening. That's when organizations like 350.org kind of led the charge on opposing this pipeline. And this was on the grounds of just climate change. You know, we're learning so much more about climate change. We're getting bigger storms. Some places are getting drowned by rising sea levels. So I think it was just kind of a line drawn in the sand saying, you know what, we're sick of these mm -hmm. fossil fuel infrastructure projects. Enough is enough. Let's just draw the line here and try to symbolically defeat this pipeline. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ken Ilgunas. His book is Trespassing Across America, one man's epic and never-before-done hike across the heartland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Mary's calling in from Wilder in Kentucky. Mary, thanks for your call. No, thanks for taking my call. I was interested in Ken's journey, and I wondered as he traveled across the country, when he met farmers or landowners, were they open to discussing their feelings about the pipeline? Did they have concerns about eminent domain issues? Or did they think this was a good thing? Hi, Mary. Yes, uh, it was a mixed bag for sure. It, and it really depended on the state or province. For instance, up in Canada, up in Alberta and Saskatchewan, pipeline infrastructure is just all over the place. And fossil fuels play a huge part in those provincial economies. That's where they're getting a lot of their tax revenue from. So there, you know, pipelines were just an ordinary thing. It's just kind of an accepted part of the culture. It wasn't until I crossed the border into Montana where I started to see people opposed to it, not necessarily on grounds of environmentalism, but on grounds of private property. You know, this is land that their great-granddaddy had homesteaded 100-plus years ago, and now here's this foreign corporation who wants to put a pipeline through their backyard so they kind of opposed it on that ground. And it wasn't until Nebraska, where people really concerned about the aquifer, that it was kind of more of an environmental issue. But in terms of climate change, I was interested to see that that wasn't a big focus for a lot of people. That wasn't a big concern. I think that's because a lot of rural America, a lot of small towns, they're just kind of 
going out of business. They're vanishing. So anything that can bring in a few dollars, anything that can help their community survive for a bit longer is something that is greeted with open arms. And environmentalism, pipelines, climate change, when your town is facing its own mortality, those things aren't as big of issues for, as for other people. So, Ken, if a, if a pipeline's going through some town in, in Nebraska that's just uh, having desperate financial straits, how does that pipeline contribute to their economy? It does a little bit. But it's no, it's no big salvation. It's no big money tree for the next generation, is it? No, this is a very temporary source of income. States welcome pipelines because they can tax the pipelines and get some yearly revenue. But it doesn't always work out that way for states. In Nebraska, it's considered a piece of equipment that depreciates. This old Keystone pipeline that's in the ground, that's only bringing in state income for about 15 years. And then after that, no sort of state income. In South Dakota, it was projected that they'd bring in about $6 million a year in taxes, but that hasn't been the case at all. They're averaging closer to $3 million a year. So it's not a huge amount of money for these states. But when the pipeline's being built, you have a whole bunch of workers, gas stations are doing well, you know, supermarkets, but that's also just a very temporary, a temporary boost source in the of money. Thanks for your call, Mary. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Nancy's calling in from East Sandwich in Massachusetts. Nancy, thanks for your call. Thank you. How did you survive in the wide open spaces without civilization um, concerning food, water, and being out in the elements? I used to be a backcountry ranger up in northern Alaska at this park called the Gates of the Arctic National Park. So I had a a good bit of experience doing backcountry travel. And all you really need is some decent gear. So, you know, I had a backpack and a tent. And my buddy in Denver, he would ship packages of food to post offices along my route. So every five or six days, I'd kind of go off course, go to one of these small towns and pick up five or six days worth of food and carry on. And for water, I kind of just drank what the cows drank. You know, when I came across a lake or a pond, I I drank from those. And if there weren't those sources, I'd go to a windmill spring. I didn't know what windmills even did until I was out on the Great Plains. I just thought they were decoration. But no, they're making water, so I would get that. Or I would just go to a home, knock on doors, and ask for a little water that way. And it's very windy on the Great Plains, so I would always set up my tent and kind of hollows in between farmers fields or if there was any woods at all i'd kind of set up my tent in there ken you're in the middle of nowhere you've got some desolate farmhouse and and you're just a stranger who's trespassing and you walk up and you knock on the door and you ask for water what was the reception generally it's a good question and you know if it was me i would just kind of be shocked fearful disturbed. You know, I I probably looked a little dusty. I had a big beard. But there was many times when they were just so nonchalant about this complete stranger coming up to their door. And they're like, yeah, we'll give you some water. (laughs) Uh, Let's run the pump a little bit so you can get the cool stuff. Now, you wrote in your book, there's no question that doing what I did, trespassing across the whitest part of America, would be 100 times harder and deadlier for a person of color. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a a sad reality, I think, of our modern society. At times, it was a tough journey for me to take. I had several 
dozen encounters with law enforcement. And for the most part, those ended in a very friendly fashion. We'd get to know each other. They'd wonder what I was doing. I'd show Mm -hmm. them my ID and then they'd wish me luck. And that was Mm -hmm. it. But I was greeted with suspicion and paranoia initially in very many situations. And, you know, here I am at that point, a 29-year-old male American who, you know, doesn't have any, like, tattoos on my face or strange piercing. You know, I, I looked, you, didn't you look know, scary. to them normal. Yeah, I didn't look scary. But to be greeted with paranoia and suspicion so many times, it made me realize that, you know, if I was black or if I was Korean or if I was gay or if I was a woman— it would have been a lot harder. Hmm. Matt, what an amazing experience. And what a pile of fun things to think about and write about as, as you're making this trip. Nancy, thanks for your call. Thank you. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Ken Ilgunas. He figures he's hitchhiked 10,000 miles across North America and birch bark canoed another 1,000 miles across Ontario. He's also worked as a backcountry ranger at Alaska's Gates of the Arctic. Ken describes his unusually frugal living arrangements while a student at Duke University in his book Walden on Wheels. He's here to tell us about the epic hike he profiles in Trespassing Across America. Ken's website is kenilgunas.com. That's spelled I-L-G-U-N-A-S. Ken, describe to me your first step and your last step on this 1,700-mile journey and overall why you sort of summed it up by saying it gave you pride in being a North American. My first step was in Hardesty, Alberta. Uh, My first step was in a south direction. I was on a road at that point, and I wouldn't start trespassing until day three. And my last step was in the Gulf Coast, just outside of Texas, in the Sabine Neches waterway, about the point where the Keystone XL would stop, right outside of a whole bunch of oil refineries near Port Arthur, Texas. And that did feel pretty darn good walking across the country that way. And yes, I I did feel a strange pride in being North American. You know, it's very easy to be cynical. There's just a lot of cynicism. There's a lot of unpleasantness between the political parties. It's easy to think that that's America. But that's not America. You know, walk across America, meet folks, be offered shelter and warmth and food and money every day, even though it's not asked for. That's the real America. And you can't help but feel just a deep pride. That hospitality, I would imagine, transcended political stances. It did. Yeah. I'm an environmentalist. I'm I'm a lefty. <laughs> These were the reddest states in America. And I'm sure they knew who I was and I'm sure they, you know, had ideas of what I believed, but that never got in the way of generosity and hospitality. That was always their first instinct. Ken Ilgunas, thanks so much for your passion for this and for sharing it in your fascinating book, Trespassing Across America. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by yours truly, Tim Tatton, with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Special thanks to WBFO in Buffalo and the Radio Foundation Studios in New York City for their help this week. 
There's more to this week's show, including Ken Ilgunas talking about hitchhiking in America. You'll find it on our website at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.